We're going to be continuing in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 14. Chapters 13 through 17 are called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is hanging out with some of his closest friends, people he's walked with for the last three years, and he's having this intimate dinner moment with them. Last Sunday, uh, we heard about some startling news, right? We heard there would be a betrayal, that someone in their midst would actually betray Jesus. We heard about a denial that someone of their body, that Peter was going to deny Jesus three times. And then Jesus talks about his departure, right? That he is going to actually be leaving them. So you can imagine, right? These 12 guys have been with Jesus for the last three years. They've dedicated their life. And now they hear about a departure, a denial, and a betrayal. All in the course of, let's say, 20 minutes. Imagine how your head would be spinning. Like, the people you've been with, you're like, what? One of us is going to deny, one of us is going to betray, and then in the midst of this, in the midst of this social reconfiguration, Jesus is saying, and by the way, I'm going to peace out for a minute. It's within this context that we start chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Three little chunks, three parts. Uh, This is part one. This is verses 1 through 3. So into this context, Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, so Jesus begins with this word of comfort. Right, he's laid this pretty heavy load on their shoulders. There's going to be a denial, a betrayal, and a departure. And here he encourages them, right? let not your hearts be troubled. In the midst of this really confusing moment, he's like, hey, don't sink into the pit of depression with your Ben and Jerry's and Netflix binge. Right? He's like, come on, trust in me. Remember, believe in God in the New Testament isn't simply one plus one equals two. This is not a like factual affirmation. This is a trust. Trust in me. And he says it two ways. He says this, believe in God. Believe in God. And he says it in uh, in Greek, there's a particular tense that's called the imperative, which is command. So he's not saying, hey, quality. So it's almost like, no, 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 do this. Trust. And it also has this ongoing quality. So it's almost like keep believing in God as things are falling apart around you keep believing. Right in the next 24 hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. He is going to be tortured. He is going to be publicly shamed and executed. He is going to be buried, and they will assume that he is dead, and he is going to say, hey, believe in God, but believe also in me. Even though I'm arrested, even though I am dead, don't stop trusting. It makes us, I don't know, it makes me think of the faith of Abraham, right? So Abraham and Sarah, they believe, even though it's biologically impossible for them to have children, right? Paul says in Romans 4.18, in hope he believed against hope of Abraham that he should become the father of many nations. There was nothing defensible, right, that Abraham could stand on, and yet he trusted anyway. And Jesus is saying to them in this moment, trust me in that way. Even when you can't see anything that is obvious that you can like cling your or hang your hope on. 
That's verse one. Then verse two, he adds a reason for hope. Right? He's saying, hey, I'm going to be leaving, but guess what? I'm not going to be gone forever. Specifically, he talks about he's going to be going away to prepare a place for them. Jesus is the son of the father. He talks about the father's home. But let's just take a minute to say, if Jesus is the son of the father, this is his home too. So he is inviting them over with him. He's saying, hey, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to invite you and I'm going to prepare a place for you in my home. Now, if the only time I've really prepared a home or a, a room for someone is when we had children. I remember thinking through like, oh, we're going to decorate the room this way, right? Jesus is preparing a room for us, right? And the point of all this prep isn't so that we can just like hang out in our own room in this massive mansion, you know, on our phone, sort of checking out in the corner in our room. The point of making this room, Jesus said, is so that we can be with him, so Jesus can be with us, so that we can be together as a family, right? In the midst of all this social confusion, betrayal, denial, and departure, he's saying, hey, I'm going to prepare a home for you, and then we're going to be together, right? Though I am leaving you, I am not abandoning you. And maybe we feel that this morning. You know, maybe even you come in this morning, there's a lot going on in your life. Jesus is saying to you this morning, hey, even though I might seem absent, I am not abandoning you. And then part two is verses four through seven. He's going to the Father, he said, you know, Jesus, verse four says, and you know the way to where I am going. And he's going to the Father, he said, you know the way. And then Thomas again is like, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. All right, so we pick up in verse 5. Thomas is vocalizing the group's incomprehension. Like, wait, what? Like, give us direction. Like, text me Google Maps. Like, show me the way. Now, as often is the case, particularly in John, actually, it's the lack of understanding of the people provides way for God's clarification, for Jesus actually to expand on what he is saying. Right? Verse 6. Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Thomas is like, how do we get there? Jesus is like, I am the way. Right? The destination is the Father's home. Right? And then he clarifies to you, and we'll get into this. No one else, six, no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? So he is the way. No one else comes to the Father except through him. So it's this very exclusive claim. We'll talk about this more later. Right? Jesus is the way to the Father. If you want to get close to God, Jesus is saying, get close to me. Trust in me. He also says he is the truth, right? And he is, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, he is the word made flesh. He is the self-communication of God embodied in actual physical life. He is the word of God, the truth of God, taking on human flesh, walking through the neighborhood. He is also the light and life of the world, John 1.4. John 10.10, 10, he says that he has come that we may have life. Why? Because life flows through the person of Jesus. 
He is the way of the Father. He is the truth of God. He is the life of God, sort of bearing fruit in the present. And then in verse 7, right, Jesus sort of doubles down. He's like, hey, and guess what? I am the way of the Father. I am the truth, and I am the life of this world. And that one of the reasons this is so intuitive and makes so much sense is because there's this profound unity between Jesus and the Father. Right? If you've known the Father, or if you've known Jesus, then you've known the Father too. So it's intuitive, right? Who would be the best person to take you to the Father? Right? The one who way to the Father because you know Him, then you know the Father. It's like, shrink the gap. Jesus is the way to the Father because He is one with the Father. Now it's time for Philip's uh, confusion to sort of air itself. Right, part three, this is verses eight through 11. So you have Thomas twice, now you Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. All right, and that's enough for us. It's like, as if Jesus didn't just say in verse seven, hey, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. But anyway, Jesus is patient. He says this, verse nine. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. So remember, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Right? And then the conversation flows, and it feels like at this moment, some of Philip's anxiety is coming to the surface. He's like, just show us the Father and it'll be enough. Like, then we'll be okay. And Jesus is pretty gracious here because he's kind of already said this in verse 7, but he's sort of, if you've seen, and expands upon it. He's like, hey man, hey guys, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? The Father speaks, and I speak. The Father acts and I acts. It's actually the Father who acts and speaks through me that you see embodied before you. That there is this beautiful unity between the Father and I making me the way and the truth and the life, right? So you can just follow me to the Father because I and the Father are one, right? Verse 11, right, sort of echoes back to verses one again, right? Believe me, believe in God, trust me. Jesus is like, hey, I get it. Hey, I get it. This is kind of hard. Like you've grown up in a world. Oh, we got a car. Oh, I love it when they almost make it. <laughs> that was the first row. If you try another one from the back, that's the standard to now evaluate upon. <laughs> right? Jesus has this moment of compassion where he's like, hey, guys, I get it. This is, are you going to come pick it up? There we go. What kind of car is it? There you go, Gary. There you go. Gary is the way to the car. Jesus is the way of truth and life. <laughs> right, verse 11, Jesus is like, trust, believe. If you're having a is hard. And then he has this sort of empathetic moment in verse 11. He's like, hey, if you're having a hard time grasping this, you know, you're having a hard time wrapping your head around it, how about you just believe all the things I've done? Right? Believe the works themselves. Look at those. Right? Because over the last 12 chapters, those first 12 chapters are really focused on these signs that Jesus does. 
right? And the signs are not about what they are in themselves, but what they point to. He's like, yeah, 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 consider that I turned water into wine. Remember that? Right? Consider that I, uh, I fed all these people in the wilderness. I walked on water. I did all these healings. Hey, if you can't wrap your head around this, trust me because of all these signs. Because what do these signs do? They point to the fact that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, that I am one with the Father. Hey, if you can't understand what I'm saying, look back to what I did. Right, which then brings us to part four. This is 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this, will, this I will do and the Father, that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. There's a couple moving pieces here. Verse 12, like, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, this is essential, as we've talked about throughout John, this is essential to rabbinic discipleship, right? The basic essence of the relationship between the rabbi and the Talmudin, or the disciple, is that they will replicate what the rabbi does, right? You're going to try your best to do what your rabbi does. This is, this is both true, this is, well, that is what Jesus is saying, but he's also adding another promise in the midst of this. So the essence of rabbinic discipleship is you try to do what your rabbi does. What Jesus says here, though, is a promise. He says, you will do the works that I have done. That I actually will empower you, enable you to do, to live the life that I lived. This isn't sort of something to strive for, that actually God, just as the Father works through Jesus, right, Jesus will ascend to be with the Father, He will send down the Spirit, the Spirit then by grace will enable us to do the works of Jesus in everyday life. This isn't like a light switch, this is sort of something that happens over time as God transforms us from the inside out so that we can live as Jesus lived. He says, this isn't something promise that if you trust in me, I will transform you. That those points of character where you are stuck, I will transform you over time so that you are not stuck in that place forever. Second, Jesus says this, another promise. He's like, and you will do even greater works. And my like intuitive imagination is like, you know what, maybe that means like I will be able to walk on water while turning water into wine, right? Because you have this like huge water resource. You could just like turn it all into wine, right? It's like even greater works than Jesus, you know? I don't think that's the point. He doesn't say cooler works, you know? Greater works. There's a couple things going on here. Jesus says, if you look at the text, he says, because he is going to the Father, you will be able to do greater works. So because Jesus dies, resurrected, ascends to the Father, he's no, limit, no longer limited by his body. So now he sends the Spirit to guide us in the mission of the world, which goes from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, which Jesus couldn't do when he was localized in a physical body. So the greater works are not about cooler works, but about the scope of the gospel to Samaria and to the ends. Limited by Jesus' physical presence in Galilee, 
and in Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's like, hey, you're going to be able to part, be a part of this greater work, extending the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Not cooler, but greater. And then he says, in the midst of this, right, in verses 13 and 14, as you lean into this, as you're trying to be like me, right, as you're trying to carry, be living billboards from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, to places like Pacific Grove and Marina and Seaside and Carmel and Monterey, he's like, as you're doing that, there's going to be times when you are overexposed. When you're like, ah, I don't know what to do, and I'm freaking out. And he says, you know what? Pray. Actually, ask for my help, and I'll be there. When you're afraid, when you're stuck, call out to me, right? I want to see, he's like, I want to see God glorified through you. Ask for help. I will answer you. I want to see you transformed. Trust me. I will transform you. Right? This is why he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Interesting here though, right? When he teaches the disciples to pray in Matthew here, he says this, this, right? Our Father. Jesus says very specifically right here, he says this, ask me, ask Jesus, ask me anything in my name. He's saying, hey, the Father and I are one. Hey, what? Guess what? Ask me in my name and I will listen to you. We can actually ask Jesus prayers, right? Ask me anything in my name and I will answer you. I want to see you transformed. I want to see you extend, be living billboards in the world that actually represent my kingdom. Right? As our hearts are troubled, as the disciples' hearts are troubled, he says, hey, guess what, guys? I will be with you. Now, the question is, okay, so that's the text, that's 1 through 14. What is that like? How does that translate into the contours, the fissures, the, the stuck places, the potholes of our everyday life? Right? How do we take this text written 2,000 years ago and sort of figure out, okay, God, how do we implement this here? The first thing that I was thinking about was sort of this connection between heart troubles and house preparation. Right? When the disciples are worried about life, Right? There's going to be a betrayal, and maybe you've experienced betrayal. Maybe you know what that is like. You thought you were kind of on the same page, and this other person diverts, and you're like, what just happened? Maybe someone's left you. Maybe you experienced the absence of Jesus right now. And Jesus is saying to us, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. Then in this moment, he sort of says, hey, you know, I have never abandoned you to the disciples. And I think that word goes to us today. Like, I haven't abandoned you. I'm preparing a home for you. Right? It has this comfortable quality. He's like, ah, preparing a home for you. It has this future quality. One of the things that happens when we're struggling, when we're anxiety, when we're depressed, when we're lonely. I mean, maybe this is just me, but maybe you relate to this. It feels like it's never going to end. You're in that place of depression, that place of downness, that place of sadness, and you just feel like it has this all-encompassing feeling of like, this is never going to change. Has anyone ever felt that? I think the reason Jesus pushes into hope right here 
is to say, hey, that's not the end of the story. Even though you feel that right now, and the disciples will feel that even more acutely in less than 13 hours, right? Jesus will be tortured, executed, and buried, and he will be dead. And he said, in the midst of that, don't lose hope. Actually, your story does that to us in our present. Like, hey, your story is not finished. Actually, your story is going to mirror the story of all creation, even though all things look kind of like a mess right now, Jesus is saying, one day I will come, I will return, and I will make all things new, right, so that they're like Eden, but even better. And he promises the same kind of transformation for us. This is a sneak peek to next week, but in verse 23, he also adds this. If you trust me, not only will I make a home for you and come back and take you to it, but I will actually come to you and make my home in you. This is verse 23, chapter 14. Not only is he making a home for us in the future, but he's going to come into your present right now and make a home with the Father with you. So I was trying to think of like practices, like how could we actually sort of lean into this on a practical, on the ground level? I think one thing we could do this week is maybe just to identify two areas of your life where you sort of experience that place, that gap, where you're maybe you experience some heart trouble. Like you're just like, man, I'm struggling in this area. And then in that place, actually take a moment and imagine what would it be like if Jesus feel like deemed that area of your life? He made it new. What would that feel like? take a moment to identify two places because we don't often want to do this. Identify two areas of your life where you really need that place of hope, that Jesus to come in and bring some restoration and imagine what would it look like if that area of your life was fundamentally redeemed, renewed, and changed. And then invite Jesus to be the hope you need in the process while that happens over time. Two, this is sort of like you have house prep and the heart and then you have this other idea of sort of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. What does it mean that Jesus is the way? Now, obviously, I just want to say this is a really exclusive claim, right? This isn't like, hey, there's a spiritual buffet out there. Pick and choose what you want. Jesus is not saying that. He is saying, I am the way to the Father. He says, there is no other way to the Father but through me. Now, in our cultural moment, though, this kind of chafes. Like, a lot of people are like, that's arrogant. How could Jesus say that? Like, you should edit his statement. Like, I'm serious. I, there's this pressure in our moment that we shouldn't actually take Jesus' word for what he says. We should edit it and be like, oh, Jesus didn't mean that. So, one of the, like, defining cultural moment is called the blind man and the elephant. I'm going to do a little elephant doodle. Tell me if it's close enough. Is that good? I was telling someone that we had a week of seminary that was just focused on this drawing. I got a B. Yeah, there you go. So the essence of this parable is this. There's blind men. And the blind men, are, they, they sort of learn by feeling, right? So one blind man, he comes up and he grabs the tail. And he's like, oh, yeah, it feels like rope. Right, another blind man comes up and he grabs the leg 
And he's like, oh, yeah, it feels like a pillar. Another blind man comes up and he grabs the trunk and he's like, oh, it feels like a snake. Another one grabs the ear and is like, oh, it feels like a fan. And the object of this parable is to say, we're all blind. Like, how do you access truth, right? There is no exclusive train because we're all blind. We're all just groping about, right? That's the object of the parable. And so what it's trying to say in our cultural moment is, we can't, Jesus can't make an exclusive claim. You, Christian, you can't make an exclusive claim. You're just groping about the leg. There's two problems with this parable. One, cultural moment in particular. One, it's told from the perspective of someone who can see everything. It's not told from the perspective of someone who is groping about and blind. And fundamentally, that is the problem with our cultural moment. They're like, you're being exclusive. You're saying Jesus is the only way. Yes. But then to also stand up here and say, hey, guess what, guys? I see the whole elephant. This is what's true and you're all groping about is just as exclusive and arrogant to claim. Can you see that? Tim Keller says this. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you have just claimed that none of the religions have? Right? So you're saying you're a blind man groping, but guess what? I see it all. It's an elephant. There's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of our sort of truth search that says everyone's groping but me. And that but me is essentially a relativist claim saying there is no exclusive truth other than the fact that there is a second, which is an exclusive truth, by the way. (laughs) Second, fundamental to the Christian narrative is not a silent elephant. In the Christian narrative, the elephant speaks. Greg Kokel says this in Stand to Reason. Even though the men are blind, the elephant isn't necessarily mute. This is a factor the illustration doesn't allow for. What if the elephant speaks? The claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, discovery is through God's own self-disclosure. He is not passive and silent, leaving us to guess about his nature. God tells us what he is like and what he wants. This is the essence of John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no discontinuity between the Father and the Son. So when you see the Son, you see the Father. So when Jesus walks about and talks, you hear the Father. When he does stuff, you see the Father acting in the world. So you know who the Father is and what he is like. Why? Because Jesus has revealed him. There is no silent elephant. There is a speaking elephant. And Jesus is the one declaring who God is. Right? And our, even as a lot of us are really sort of knocked off our feet, even as followers of Jesus, I think some of us are like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I can really say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You can. Jesus says it, and the question is whether we will trust him. And I think if you're visiting today or you're not sure about Jesus, Jesus is, I 
think challenging, inviting you to say, all right, I'm curious about God. Jesus is saying he is the way to the Father. The question is, will you trust him? Will you accept him as your guide? Will you accept him as the one who reveals truth in the world? The reality isn't defined by all the books you read and the podcasts you hear, but by Jesus himself revealing God on earth. Right, as you flirt about with like how to live into the fullness to really flourish in life, Jesus says he is the way to that flourishing. He is the way to life. So there's an invitation from Jesus today if you're sort of curious about God to say, all right, Jesus, I am going to follow you. I invite you today to, if you're sort of sensing God inviting you on that journey, come talk to me after service. We believe at Wellspring that like choosing to follow Jesus requires us not simply to raise our hand in a sermon and at a service, but to actually take the risk to come up to someone and say, yes, I'm going to take the risk to give my life to following Jesus. Help me in that process. So if you, and if you're a Christian in that process, come and talk to me. There are a lot of wise people here that would love to walk with you. And if you're a Christian or you've been sort of attending services for a long time, but you feel like, you know what? You don't know if you've ever really accepted Jesus as the way and the truth and the life of your life. Come and talk to us. We want to walk with you. And in a moment, when we do communion, you're going to have an opportunity to kind of choose Jesus again. If this is your first time in a church service, this is going to be an opportunity for you to say, do you want Jesus to ultimately be the way and the truth of your life? And communion is one of the ways you can say, yes. It's also one of the ways that for us, as maybe you've gone to church for 55 years, you can choose Jesus again today. Maybe he's become one of multiple things you care about, and Jesus is like, no, 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 I want to be number one. Lastly, all right, so you have this house prep, you have Jesus as the way, and last, you have this sort of idea of trust and transformation. Right, this is verses 12 through 14. Jesus really says three things in this section. First, he talks about sort of life alignment, our lives aligning with his, right? This is the idea of, hey, you will do the things I do. And he wants us, he's inviting us, and he's promising us that if we trust in him, our life and our character will align with his. He's also inviting us to, he's inviting us to sort of a larger story, a larger mission in the world, right? This greater works idea. He's inviting us to be living billboards of his goodness in the world. Fundamentally, what that is, is we are sent, we're sort of invited to sense where is God already moving in the everyday contours of our life and what does it look like to partner and join with him? And he says, in the midst of those two things, hey, guess what? Talk to me. Pray with me. Come near to me. Listen to my voice. So on a super practical level, I just want to say, you know, I think it's worth taking some time this week and identifying what are two or three areas of your life that are out of sync with Jesus' life and Jesus' character and Jesus' heart. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's, I don't know, whatever, selfishness. I don't know what you want to say. What are those three or maybe two or three areas of your life that are broken that you really need to say, all right, Jesus, I need help here that my life would align with yours. Now, I know we don't like to do this. This is not like the fun assignment, you know? But I think this is where we have to recognize the places of incongruity in our life and heart with who Jesus was and how he lived if we want to be shaped into his image. Two, 
I think a lot of work of the larger mission, sort of, a lot of us sort of take ourselves off the playing field when it comes to this greater work of the larger mission of God. Most of us look at our life and we're like, I don't know. You know, we're, we're either scared of how people will respond if we try and share about, you know, talk into this cultural moment of the elephant and the blind man. We're afraid of how people will respond if we say, no, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and life. We're afraid of being shamed. Some of us look at our life and those broken parts of it, and we're afraid, like, if we're too out about our faith, it'll be like, people will be like, but dude, you're so angry. You're so greedy. You're so broken. And we'll feel the hypocrisy of that moment. I invite you to look at your life, and what are, what are again, what are two reasons why you don't embrace that greater works, that larger mission, being a living billboard, and talk to Jesus about it. He's inviting us to align our character and our life with his. He's inviting us to be a part of a grand adventure. Why don't we actually talk to him, right? He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will, I will answer. I will be there. But I think there's an invitation on our side to enter into that conversation with him. Three things I've talked about sort of in everyday life. One, house prep, this word of hope. That Jesus is wanting to bring hope. Two, we've talked about truth. Who is Jesus as meant so that our lot? And three, we've offered trying to offer like a word of introspection, discernment, and encouragement so that our lives and characters align with Jesus, so that our lives are living billboards in the world. As we transition into worship, we're going to celebrate communion together. I want to invite Aaron to uh, lead us into communion as we sort of go into, into worship.